Hello and welcome to Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rania. So, Kevin and I are super thrilled to welcome back to the show um, our friend Todd Miller. Uh, Todd is a journalist, and he's the author of Border Patrol Nation, which is an excellent book that everybody listening should read. Um, And Todd is actually working on two new books at the same time because he's insane. Um, But they're really good. They're going to be really good. One of them is on the intersection of border militarization and climate change. Um, And the other one is a book that basically Todd is going to be following the exports or how, how the U.S. border operations are being exported abroad um, and how it's manifesting in different ways um, at borders around the world. Um, and so that ties really neatly into the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. So first and foremost, uh, welcome back to the show, Todd. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Well, um, you just got back from Paris um, where you were attending a massive and like one of the world's biggest weapons expos that happens annually, the Millipole. Um, weapons Expo, um, and this happened, this took place the week, literally the week after the Paris attacks. So the Paris attacks happened on Friday, and like two days later, this Weapons Expo happened, which is like perfect timing for the weapons industry. Um, so I guess like we're going to get to that, but first, you were also in Paris after the state of emergency went into effect, um, and there was recent, there is right now happening, I think it's still happening, is the Climate Summit. Um, and climate marchers were prevented from marching, like protesters were prevented from marching by the French authorities using the state of emergency that was put into place because ISIS attacked Paris. Um, so why don't you start off by talking about that aspect of, of what you witnessed? Cause you said you witnessed the, the marching and the being prevented and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is true. I did. I was um, there at the Plaza of the Republique on on, uh, on uh, November 29th, and that was the day that the the massive climate march was planned by primarily civil, you know, the kind of grassroots international organizations who who um, have a very you know uh, urgent voice when it comes to climate change and and seeing some of the you know immediate. Um, potential devastation that could happen across the globe if if this isn't addressed, you know, right away in, in, during the Paris climate talks. So the, the, there was this huge march planned, and and of course the the attacks happened in Paris, um, as Rania just mentioned, two days before I actually arrived to this this huge weapons convention, which we'll discuss in a bit. Um, but one interesting thing about the weapons convention was that I, you know, that one of the first things I saw was the national police. Um, giving demonstrations uh, during, you know, right at the at the front in this demonstration area, and um, and then the then I didn't really, you know, pay attention to the national police all dressed up in their kind of, you know, anti riot gear or whatever, however you want to call it, you know, like pads everywhere and helmets and you know uh, all the you know the accessories of kind of that RoboCop that everyone is kind of used to these yeah, days. Yeah, a friend of mine always says, you know, you know uh, who's who's uh, ready for a riot or who's going to incite a riot by who's dressed for a riot. <laughs> yeah, and that, I think that's pretty much what happened on on the 29th. And mind you, the 29th was the day before the summit. The summit began. Um, the the summit began on the 30th, and it's going till the 11th. So it was the 29th, and oh, lo, you know. 
that kind of dressing up for the event yeah. <laughs> was happening well before any any sort of uh, violence um, began. Uh, you know, you know the whole. Well, I went to the the Republic Plaza. One interesting aside there too, which is which I found flabbergasting was that NBC News had been there in the in the in this plaza, mm -hmm. the Republic Plaza, for you know two weeks or three, you know since the attacks, right? Reporting or you know talking every day and you know, reporting every day from this plaza. Mm -hmm. And on this very day when, when all the, you know, the kind of riot police were showing up in massive numbers. And mind you, too, they said that they, the, the climate march couldn't happen because they couldn't provide a adequate, quote-unquote, security for the marchers. Mm -hmm. But yet, here they are, you know, seemingly, I don't know how many, but it just seemed like the place was inundated with these, with these, uh, with these police. And, um, and, but, who starts packing up NBC News? So they're they're gone, and you know when the real like kind of state of emergency conflict tension moment is about to happen, NBC News packs it up and goes. And um, <laughs> like, well, Paris is preserving its freedom. <laughs> yeah. like, I can leave. That's good. I, I meant to go and interview the people packing up, but I didn't get around to it. I was I meant to, you know, <laughs> but uh. There was a bunch of other things happening, and then there was a big human chain that, and this, but this is also in the area, the very same area where the attacks happened. So all the different cafes where the attacks happened were all around this area, and the Bataclan, the, the music venue, was just you know a quarter mile down the road, and um, and you know then people, you know this, if for a while you know nothing happened, there was a human chain, and then, and then about you know in the after, early afternoon. There was a number of uh, organizers who said we're going to kind of defy the state of emergency ban on on the march, and they began to march. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, there was a number of the organizers of the march who were put on house arrest, um, right, with the state of emergency laws before this happened. So, so you know, the 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 the, the attempted to disorganize this march was very active, right, right, and then. I, by the time the march started, unfortunately, I was not in the plaza when it started. And by the time I got there, the police were already completely surrounded the plaza and would not allow anyone in. So we tried every way to get in. We tried to go underground, through the subway. But they're right when we were coming up, they were closing the doors. And uh, finally, you get up there, and, and it's obvious there's something really violent happening. And I could only see it from afar at first. But it turns, you know, it's this this kind of, you know, the, the police didn't like this march and confronted the marchers. And then all of then a kind of confrontation started and, and tear gas was launched. And and this is when I start seeing not only the kind the cops, you know, dressed in the same gear as Villiful, the web from the weapons convention. That's when I see them pulling out their crowd control devices, you know, the tear gas launchers and whatnot that I were also very present at the Millipol uh, weapons conference. And um, and they started, you know, so tear gas was wafting through the air, and you could see it covering the, the like this monument where where people are paying homage to the victim of the victims <gasps> of the attack. You know, then police then trampled all the, like the the flowers and the candles and everything put around the same monument because they they pretty much started closing in. And when they started closing in, that's when I was on the outskirts. But then they started coming after all of us on the outskirts. So I had to run several times. 
All I was doing was taking pictures, you know, <laughs> just taking pictures. And uh, well, yeah, MSNBC and, left, so or NBC yeah. left. NBC's gone. There's no. That's all there is is kind of the alternative reporting. And uh, they started running. You know, they would march and start beating on their um, their shields, and then they they start in full. There's a couple times they came in full sprint. When you see these guys coming up. The bullies? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I was like, in between, should I run or <laughs> should I photograph this? And Right, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. So I did both. I ran and tried to photograph at the same time. But they were, they, they, it turned out they were going after, they would select people and they would just run after them and grab them. That's how yeah. what I saw in Baltimore, to be honest, yeah. which is weird, but yeah, probably similar to that. Um, that's insane! Wow, like I mean, that's like I mean, look. To be fair, like they're they're just they're trying to give it to they're really giving it to ISIS, like yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's and this was like a week. I mean, this was like a, a week after the attack, or a little over a week after two the weeks. attack. Two weeks. Two, two weeks. weeks. So like they're not they're not like searching for suspects anymore. It's not like that kind of state of emergency the way it was like in the couple of days after. This is no, like... no, they're still they're still targeting communities out of the public eye, right? So they're the Muslim communities out in the outskirts of Paris. Um, they're going, you know, there there's there's all kinds of reports of raids into um, different places. Um, throughout the whole country, twenty two hundred, play over twenty two hundred. Yeah, yeah. like businesses, people's homes, right. schools, mosques right. have been raided, and it's it's actually really frightening to, to read reports out of France right now. Right. Yeah. It, it truly is. Um, but so, but move like moving on to the to the weapons convention. Um, so you, I mean, this is like this is. Convention's massive. I I saw you tweeting out some a couple of photos from inside of it that were, you know, like funny in a really bad way. Yeah. Um, because they, I mean, like they were just like really dark, like kind of. I think one of them said something like was like a an advertisement for a drone, but it was like you can guard your castle. Yeah. Or your yacht. It was like. Yeah. What? yeah. Um, it was like for personal drone, but you know, for the less funny parts of it, um. You know, this, this weapons expo, like, came at, I mean, if I was a weapons industry titan, like, I would be thrilled that, like, an attack happened two days ago, and now I'm going to go sell my wares to international buyers. Um, so, I guess, can you, like, kind of give us, tell us, like, what, what the ep- weapons expo, expo was like? Um, and then also, like, uh, the, the issue of refugees you mentioned came up as maybe, like, a selling point. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the Paris attacks came up as a selling point. And then you also said climate did. Um, so, I guess, could you sort of talk about all those things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The weapon, yeah. First of all, you know, I was, I've been planning to go to this conference for, for a long time. And the, the fact that the attacks happened was, you know, that was, that was, I was, I thought, well, is this going to be canceled? And no, of course, the, again, the climate march is canceled, <laughs> right? but not the weapons convention, right? Insane. Um, yeah. And, and they said, don't worry, you'll have extended security. So to get in there, you had layers of security and you had to open up your jackets to make sure you didn't have explosive belts and all this. And they were uh, like just showing ISIS that they're not going to like, let them scare them out of doing a weapons convention. <laughs> Yeah. So there they are. And I've been I've been to lots of these. And this is basically a maybe one of the biggest I would call it a homeland security convention. Um because that's 
basically, you know, it's this kind of internal, what they call an internal security. Um, but it's like, yeah, Homeland Security, crowd control, border control, that sort of thing. And um, I've been to a lot of these different conventions in the, over the last five years or six years. And this one, and and first of all, it's two, three, as you said before, three days after the attack. So it's still, you know, completely fresh, completely shocking. Yeah. And there's this this convention that's just buzzing with people i mean there's there it doesn't at first it seems like did the attacks even happen you know it's it just seems like there's all this quote-unquote synergy happening and (laughs) people there's so many people just going from booth to booth and all these conferences and and um and uh you know there's this you know taser had this dinosaur you know this fake dinosaur they were well, they were like walking around the whole convention uh, because they they said this dinosaur was symbolic because they said the law enforcement was outdated, you know, and, <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just, it was, and it was almost, I couldn't deal with it in a way, you know, it was, it was, I could, but I couldn't, you know, and then, and then I, what I tried to do was go to all the, the conferences and, um, and yeah, you know, and the private industry was given lots of platforms, um, and it didn't take long for me to go to several, watch several com- companies pitch their products, and mainly kind of internal surveillance products. Um, and when you say internal like, surveillance, like what do you mean? Like I mean, um, more like I guess that's probably a wrong way to put it. Like. Homeland Security border, but I wouldn't say internal surveillance makes it seem like it's only internal. And when it's all, it's external, it's like the kind of surveillance state that we're we're looking at, you know? So yeah. one company, uh, I didn't even know what they were selling because they, she gets, <laughs> she gets, the representative gets up there and has a slideshow. And, and the first slide she shows is the ref, you know, a picture of the refugees and then oh, a picture gosh. of the Paris attackers. <gasps> Yeah, right in the same slide. What and company was this? It was Verint, B-E-R-I-N-T. Oh, they're the company that, like, helps the NSA spy. That's, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, like, it's like, oh, I, I think it's, is that an Israeli company? I don't, I well, I didn't think it was an Israeli company. It might be. I mean, actually, I mean, I, there's, like, one company that helps the NSA. It doesn't matter, regardless. Like, but I, I know exactly what company you're talking about. Yeah. And that's insane. That that is that, that means that, like, they, so that woman, like, went back to, her um her like slideshow and and edited it like modified it to because of the attacks <laughs> like yeah she said she actually said i made it three weeks ago but now i have to um show you and then she showed she showed this movie with scarlett johannesson like this little part where she's <laughs> in this movie and then scarlett johannesson has this ability to see look into a crowd and just get profiles of every single person in the crowd and there's and so all these profiles like she looks at the crowd and all these profiles of everyone in the crowd show up on the screen and uh and then her that yeah then they determine which ones are the you know the threats and <laughs> and they're pretty much this is what we want to do with variants you know and and so but the whole time she then she explains what the company does and then goes back to this refugee you know the whole you know people are crossing the borders there's no border control you need to like get the we have to have every time they cross a border they have to leave a digital footprint so you know making the the narrative of the border as a leaving a surveillance area right a surveillance zone but through biometrics and camera and surveillance so them working with the nsa would be of no surprise um 
Oh. Yeah, so there was that, that. That's one example of many examples of this this kind of uh, digital technological surveillance kind of world that was so strikingly present and so much using the Paris attacks, um, conflating it with the refugees and then using it to sell a product. And that narrative was not challenged, right? It, it just, and when I went, I went up and asked, I tried to ask them questions at the end to try to figure out if, they, if their uh, technology was deployed anywhere. And, and she basically said, uh, well, then she said, who are you? Looked at my like identifications. And then she nodded over to somebody else who was sitting on, you know, there. And she, this other person came up to me and said, we don't talk to journalists. <laughs> we just, <laughs> conversation closed. I'm like, you just, you just talked to everyone for 30 minutes on this presentation and you can't answer one question. And that's so yeah. not, well, I just, I just want to clarify real quick. Verant um, is a company that was developed by uh, people in Israel from Israel's like intelligence unit, um, like te technology intelligence unit. I just want to throw that out there because I said I mentioned that before. Um, but that's I mean that's like insane. That that is it's just so dystopian. Um, yeah. That 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 like kind of scenario is taking place, and that they're talking about refugees. But it kind of makes sense, right? Because a lot of this technology is used for border is for is used for border militarization, um, and to keep people out, which is something that you you know are an expert on. Um, so I imagine you probably saw a lot of border like products, like border border patrol policing products, and then also like were they using the climate summit at all as um, like a selling point for their products or just climate change in general? Um, yeah, they, there was surprisingly little mention of the summit, but there was a whole day dedicated to what I think, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it was like disaster response <laughs> and, or something like that. And climate change was the overarching theme throughout the whole morning of conferences. And people are basically saying the world's fucked. <laughs> Sorry. Can I use that word? Yeah, of course. And you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Please okay. feel free. Use it generous yeah. if you want. All right. Um, and. <laughs> And uh, so we're into we have a dire future in front of us, and thus you know there's all this need for all these you know surveillance uh, products, and of course the that you know it goes hand in hand with the the national security narrative around climate change, where there's no debate about it really. There's it's happening, and they're in you know the the military and now homeland security is preparing for these kind of future projections of climate change without a debate at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in a way that's, that has nothing to do with the Paris summit talks. It's just happening in this kind of, you know, like in this homeland security sense or in the border sense, which what I, I've looked at is actually preparing the border, you know, borders and in the United States Department of Homeland Security has documents. They have a climate ad adaptation plan and they have a quadrennial report where they show how climate change is fitting into their strategy to prepare our borders and the border enforcement regime or militarization regime that we have in place um, for climate change, you know, for potential mass migration due to natural disasters, um, that sort of thing. So it plays into this kind of quote unquote national security narrative that you know we need to we in the proverbial sense of them mm -hmm. they need to build up you know borders and the borders in the sense of not just a singular international line but a gigantic surveillance zone 
where you know people's rights are suspended in this zone and um and people can be monitored and and stopped and arrested and they can have their stuff searched and they can be questioned and interrogated so this kind of this kind of creation of these secure of these so-called quote unquote security zones or more adequately policed militarized surveillance zones are very much a part of this climate change, like restructuring of the world for in the in the name of climate change. Yeah, and like I guess like using terrorism as um, a pretext to do it all. Yeah, they call it like a threat multiplier. Climate <laughs> change is a quote unquote threat multiplier, and then terrorism is one of the primal threats of this. So this is like disaster capitalism where right. all these companies are building up their customers, their customer bases based on apocalyptic events that are going to happen in the world, which their incentive would not be to stop climate change if they're <laughs> going to profit off of the end of the world. I just got chills. I just like literally got chills just like hearing you lay that out, Kevin. Wow. Yeah, that's... That's, that's true. Like that's, yeah. yeah, that's probably the best way I've ever heard it put. Um, of course, they would not say it that way, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's a, if truth be said, I, 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 that, I, that is the way I think you have to look at it. I mean, it's definitely, these are definitely companies that are going to profit off disasters and massive disasters and disasters that are going to kill, you know, probably, you know, kill lots of people and who knows what, right? And, and lots of people will be in movement and, and mobilization and crossing borders and whatnot. And, and yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it seems to be. And what you just described about, like, a security zone is kind of what you've laid out before on the show, because um, that's sort of what the U.S. has in place now or is building up is, is building on top of, which is this, like, multi-layered, almost, like, hierarchy of borders. I guess maybe not, maybe not hierarchy, but, like, just, like, there's, like, a border. The border just reaches further and further out so they can start detaining people as far away as Honduras yeah. before they even leave Honduras to try and get to the U.S. Yeah. That's a, that's totally true, and that's it's. If you look at the 2012-2016 strategy for border policing, by you know the the strategy papers of the U.S. Border Patrol, it talks about a layered strategy. And the chief of the Border Patrol, Mike Fisher, has said the the actual international boundary line is no longer, in in his words, the no longer the first nor last line of defense. He uses those words, right? It's a militaristic line of defense, right? But the and it's like part, impoverished people who are like fleeing a lot of right. issues that we've caused. Right. But continue. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I like this summer I was in Honduras actually, and I and Guatemala, Honduras, Guatemala just formed a binational border force, Ooh. and which was partially funded by the United States through a, the Central American Regional Security Initiative, and um, so. Now, now they were trained by border patrol agents, um, and now they're patrolling the Honduras-Guatemalan border as a task force. And and now, but Mexico's southern border is completely bolstered um, with using again. This is what they call it the 21st century border program, and that's in quotes. So it's kind of this Orwellian feel to it. And the U.S. has just poured money into southern Mexico. So Mexico has been like become a border zone, and anyone coming from Central America is hitting right into this in almost impossibility now. You have to like 
do you go to great, you know, really like threatening, you have to threaten your life to pretty much defy this border regime um, unless you have money to pay people off. So yeah, that's what, that's what we're looking at this, what they call layered, but this extending border and, and then climate is, is now definitely a part of the analysis. Like in their, their papers, they identify Central America as one of the key places. It's like it's prone to massive hurricanes. It's prone to there's this like unprecedented drought going on there as well. And two million people are in the brink of starvation, as I saw in a headline Whoa. From, a, from a recent article. And so you have you have this like you have, um yeah, the, these this kind of this geopolitical restructuring through is one way of a massive, you know, this is one part of, you know, a larger security system that definitely includes the U S military and, uh, you know, the NSA and, you know, all, there's all kinds of components to it, but this is one, this kind of border surveillance zone component is one part of that bigger picture. And it sounds like identical to what Europe wants to do. And I think is trying to do, but just not as successfully yet. Um, because I know part of Europe's plan to deal with refugees is to have the border is to have like this more multi-layered approach and yep. to give money to like the security forces in Egypt yep. and in I mean, even Sudan, like places where people are fleeing, like massive atrocities, you yep. know, like stopping them from fleeing in the first place, like making sure they stay in their home countries. So like they're taking away the right of people to, to a have freedom of movement, but be also to even become refugees. Yeah. I, that's, I think I would argue that's the plan in Europe right now. It's it's this what they call externalization um, in Europe, and and that is exactly what they're doing. They're 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 making deals with 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 states outside of the European Union, including Tur- Turkey is one one place to look at really closely right now in that sense because because Turkey is doing all kinds of border policing right now and setting up walls and all this other stuff and you know, really scrutinizing people going through the country. And then, yeah, throughout Morocco, another one like, you you know, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, all these, you know, and even further south. So you're, you're at this kind of externalization of that's just that you're like, you're, yeah, like Mexico, right? You, you have this, you know, a place where there's a lot of people immigrating from Mexico, you know, but at the same time, it's becoming a pol- this middle kind of middle middle person policing force that becomes a border zone and its own like a whole country becomes a border zone look from a diff- from a particular perspective jesus um well i guess we we ventured a little off where we had talked about talking about so before i guess i forget i do want to um I, I have to ask you because it's obviously like what i write about um were there lots of Israeli companies? In this yeah. Project, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Too bad you weren't there to see it. It was quite, quite spectacular. One, one time I was, I was, you know, this is really dumb, but there, I was like, I'm gonna take. I took a picture of of this the screen with all these kind of. It has me, you, you in night vision. It has like it had me like the cameras are on me in night vision. Cameras on me in border body you know, heat and all this other stuff. So it was this big surveillance monitor and I took it and it turned out it was an Israeli company with all this kind of surveillance <laughs> stuff. And it was, I was going to, I forgot to post it. I was going to post it on Twitter or something and say like a selfie, like a surveillance. <laughs> never, yeah, never too late. Yeah, I know. Maybe I should do it. Still do it. But, um, but yeah, Israel, the Israeli presence there was, was striking. I, they're like, 
a lot of the the conference was you know the expo area was divided by countries and they would have the banners of the countries over their their different booths and Israel I think was the biggest um there was lots and lots of companies um there's one uh the the you know there's they had crowd control stuff there's one like the thunder the crowd control like you know acoustic uh it's supposed to make you know be so loud that that you know to a you know a crowd that you'd back away from it that sort of thing there's also albert systems right and albert systems is now becoming more and more you know it's very well known where i live in in the southwest us mm-hmm. along the us mexico border because they have the the biggest contract right now with customs and border protection and homeland security as far as um the surveillance creating a surveillance uh you know uh towers and and what they call a virtual wall mm-hmm. like a technological wall which is another layer of border policing in, you know in Arizona and so you have Albert systems there um of course i mean i expected them to, i expect it wasn't really a surprise right to see all the israeli companies there and right you i mean you wrote like you like wrote that an in-depth piece a few months ago about um about us border or dhs active or not dhs i'm sorry but about um, the Arizona research like facility at the university actively yeah. tr- like trying to attract Israeli companies right. um, to the Arizona Mexico border. Um, so yeah, I guess it isn't a surprise. This is kind of like this, you know. Israel's really let's be honest. Israel's really really great at keeping people out um, yeah. <laughs> and at like you know keeping people penned in. So of course they'd be good at this. This is where they excel. Um, but I guess, yeah, we can use that to segue into what we also want to talk about before, um, before the interview is over. And that is a recent article you wrote about the U S Mexico border. Um, so why, I guess, why don't we, why don't you delve into that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, the Albert systems is a very good segue because they have built, um, their first, uh, kind of system of seven, what they call, um, integrated fixed towers, and there are seven fixed towers that work in tandem, and they're about 12 miles north of the city of Nogales, right on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, now, that has been, they went through an evaluation, and Department of Homeland Security has said, yeah, has given the thumbs up. And now their next project is on the Tonawatam Nation. And the Tonawatam Nation is basically the subject of of the of the article you just mentioned and what is happening on the Tonawatam Nation. And the Tonawatam is um, an, an indigenous group who uh, where, you know, all of southern Arizona is the original Aboriginal land of the Tonawatam. In fact, their lands go 200 miles into Mexico. Um, they, so the actual reservation itself, which is the second largest of its size, it's the size of the state of Connecticut, is this, is the second largest in the in the country. Um, but it's only a fraction of their original land, which definitely goes into Mexico. So when the border, when the U.S.-Mexico border was drawn, well, of course, without the consultation of the Tonawatam, um, it uh, it divided their original land in in half. So border issues have been a big issue for for the Tonawatam for quite a, for since 1855 when when this happened. But they've you know they've been able to uh, you know cross back and forth fairly freely. Um, regardless, right? right? There have been border patrol, but they they've been able to cross back and forth up until recently in the post 9/11 era. 
um, when when you've seen just in, in unprecedented growth of the U.S. Border Patrol, where it went up from 4,000 to 23,000 agents that we see today, um, with budgets that went from $1.5 billion to like $18 billion, if you include Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement today, annual budgets. Um, so you see this kind of, it's it's one of the areas on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a, it's a Native American reservation where it's just incredible what is going on under the public eye, really, as far as just the inundation of Border Patrol. Like, you, you can go through the nation and and just see more Border Patrol driving around than um, Tono Autumn. And what they are doing on the reservation as far as um, abuses of the people who live on the reservation, and, and, and these abuses just run... Um, there was a town hall meeting recently, and and um, and the question was asked on the Tonalto Nation, and the question was asked, has anyone had a bad experience with the U.S. Border Patrol? And at, there was 100 people, and they say every single person raised their hands. So it's, it's, it's like this prevalent um, homeland security presence on this um, Native American reservation where everyone has a story of being tailgated by Border Patrol of having being spotlighted on the back of these driving, you know, being being uh, pulled over by Border Patrol. And some cases, a lot of cases actually verbally abused by Border Patrol. Some people have been pulled out of their car. They've been pepper sprayed. They've been uh, beaten with batons. Um, there's 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 all kinds of cases of home invasions um, by Border Patrol um, of Tawn Austin's people's homes where they claim they're searching for smugglers, searching for undocumented people, you know, whatever. It's like they're doing anything they want on the on the on the reservation. And so the article that you just mentioned was um, basically an article about that. An article though that also involved a personal story of recently of going down to the Tone Automation. It happened to be Columbus Day of all days. Mm. And um huh. and um yeah, and we were and just kind of pulled over and kicked off the reservation by the Border Patrol. And um and and uh we had I we had a Tone Autumn person with us and a filmmaker who was just gonna interview the um this um a friend of mine, Joshua Garcia, um, who's Tone Autumn from the actual area. And we were pulled over by Border Patrol and pretty much, you know, detained for an hour and, you know, the yelled at constantly. And then, you know, they called the Tone Alton police. And to much of our chagrin, there was a white police officer um, from the Tone Alton police force kicked us off and told us if we if he saw us filming anywhere on the on, on the nation that he would arrest us. Um, and so, uh, Ton, an actual, you know, Joshua, my friend Josh, Joshua, his Ton Autumn was actually, to his Ton Autumn, was actually removed from his own land, <laughs> you know, of his ancestors that went back thousands of years. I by, mean, yeah. No, continue, continue. I, I was, I was just going to butt in, but please continue. Oh, no, that's, that, I mean, that's basically the gist of it. I mean, you know, this, what's going on in there is just, it's like a post, that this post 9-11, a war, pretty much, you know. Um, it's like this: the job was never done on the Native Amer- this Native American reservation. So now they're there, and they're going to make sure it's done, right? That's, I mean, it's what... amazing. It's amazing because, like, I, you know, 
you never hear. I mean, especially at a time when police violence is like in the news constantly, this is something you never hear about. Like, I don't, you know, there's never a headline about this. And it's kind of shocking. I mean, because you, you, you referenced this Ameri- this ACLU report yeah. that came out um, calling and calling um calling this area calling this reservation uh, a prototype of a modern day police state yeah um i mean that's like you know that's that's not hyper i mean they're not being hyperbolic when they say that <laughs> no they, and 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 to go back to the israel or the palestine connection is is um people almost across the spectrum refer to the border patrol as an occupying army mm. i hear that all the time, you know, every, you know, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You hear like that sort of language of occupation, um, you know, used re- frequently by everyone. And yeah, and I mean, they're using a lot of the same tools. I know that there's like a relationship between um, every, almost every American police department. Um, and that includes the border patrol and the Israeli security apparatus. And then also you mentioned Elbit systems, which by the way, is there, so is the wall, is the wall built on this particular land, like the wall, that the actual physical barrier. Yeah, there's. Well, they have on the Native American on the Tonawanda Nation. They have share seventy miles, which is U.S. Mexico border, and the, on those seventy miles, there's vehicle barrier. Mm. And, um, initially, they wanted to uh, to build the wall, and um, the and they re- actually the tribal council refused. The tribal council, who has actually in a lot of ways been in cahoots with the border patrol. Oh, um, of course. Actually, uh, <laughs> no. It really sounds like Palestine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but they were they they stood their ground or, over the wall, mm-hmm. and they but they they said you know they they said okay to this these vehicle barriers. So it's basically there's a delineated via, demarcated vehicle barrier that goes along the 70 miles, which is like a wall, but it's smaller. Small so right? you can't drive. You can like 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 jump over it, but you can't. You like, can jump over it. Yeah. But, you can't supposedly you can't try, but but then you know when people cross, there's all these ramps, and you know you can go on and on about this stuff. Well, Kevin, do you have any other um, questions? No, I think we should probably wrap. We've hit about forty minutes, and uh, we've had a really good conversation, and there was a lot of good stuff that you shared, Todd. Thank you. Yeah, thank you yeah, so much. That was no, great to be on with you. Thanks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Kevin Gastola and Rania Kalik is with us again. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And uh, before we get into this discussion part, we have a pitch for you. Um, it being the end of the year, we are going to be asking for donations again to support the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. We've been going for two years now. It's pretty incredible, right, Rania? Yeah, it is. Like, we were just talking about how many episodes we've done, and it's like, we're almost at 80? That's in, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, we, we've done, you know, about, four, on average, about 40 weeks out of the year, we've been posting shows, uh, and we mostly do it on a very, very thin shoestring budget. We raised some money last year, and we want to raise some more. Uh, setting a goal of uh, uh, $1,500 to raise in order to fund the podcast. And we have a page 
up online uh, that I'll I'll link to in the posting of this. Uh, so when we share the link, there will be a way that you can get to the donate page. But it's at donate.shadowproof.com backslash page backslash contribute backslash ud dash donate. And that's long. But we'll share the link so that you can get to it when you're listening to this podcast. And uh, you can you can donate in, in many different ways to support us. But specifically, what this is going to make possible is that we continue to produce the show for a third season. Uh, and, you know, we need uh, to... And to have this so that we can continue to make the show, I mean, both of us are working journalists. Yeah. <laughs> and often we're doing this in addition to the journalism, and sometimes we don't have the ability to work on it. And uh, th- this makes sure that we're you know, doing a show for like 35 or 40 weeks of the year so that we can put this up for everyone to enjoy. And we think it's an important show to keep doing. So... Hopefully, if you if you like us, if you listen to our show and you appreciate the guests that we bring on, um, I think that the guests are a selling point too. We've had some really good people on, uh, and these aren't these are people that should be invited on shows on CNN or or even MSNBC. But we know that they're not getting on air to talk about uh, any issues, uh, and so yes, uh, please. If you if you can support uh, our podcast and, and help us keep going and uh, and make a contribution to the unauthorized disclosure podcast, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that you should totally do what Kevin said. <laughs> that was a good. All pick. right, so we've got horror um, in the yeah, last so week. Yeah, right into it. The uh-huh. San Bernardino shooting. I'll let you just jump in, Ron. You go. Well, yeah, you just like go, Ronya. Go. Um, yeah, so the shooting in San Bernardino is horrifying, um, really scary. Like, 14 people killed by, like, some guy they worked with who – it's just – it's crazy because, you know, a lot of times, like, it, it almost – so it's, like, really crazy because I know they're trying to connect to terrorism, and look, it might be. It might be that this guy and his wife were legitimately um, – inspired to like do an ISIS style attack. I'm not denying that that, that could, that's totally plausible, but you know, it just, they're trying really hard because the couple who did it ended up being Muslim um, to make it about terrorism. And it's just not clear, not totally clear that it is, which in my opinion kind of makes it almost scarier because like, I want to know the reason someone does something like this. Like it's like Adam Lanza killed a bunch of kids at first graders at Sandy Hook. And like, we still don't know what his motive was and we're never going to know what his motive was. And that actually drives me crazy. Um, so this, this shooting is like making me like, it's like it, the shooting has a similar aspect to it. where like, it's not clear why he did it. His family and friends like never suspected his coworkers never suspected that this guy would ever commit something like this. Um, and it's just like, I know the FBI is saying like his wife was, his wife like declared her, um, allegiance to ISIS, but they're like, oh yeah, she did it in a Facebook post that she then deleted and wrote under, under not even her own name. I'm just like, well, that's not that doesn't make sense to me either. Like, evidence that they did this in the name of ISIS. They have a, they have a six month old child. It's just a horrifying, you know, what's a horror show, right? Um, but like, look, but it even got even more of like it became even more of a circus when yesterday. Um, Several establishment media outlets, like serious news outlets, had their sent their reporters 
to the uh, home of the deceased couple. Um, and the landlord opened it up and this like, just like gang of marauding rogue reporters, like ransacked the house on live television, like MSNBC was airing it live. Um, and they just had reporters, the reporter was just going through like narrating everything he was seeing, which was really mundane, like common things that you see in anyone's home. Some of the things that had to do with like Islam, like there was a Quran. So he was like, here's a Quran. There were prayer beads, so everyone was everywhere. Like every reporter who was like on camera was like, "And these are prayer beads." Like, they were like, they were all like narrating. BBC did it too. They were like narrating what they were seeing, um, and it was disturbing for a couple of reasons. One, because just seeing the photos and the images and the video of like journalists, like reporters with cameras, just like like as if they were zombies trying to get in to eat flesh, <laughs> like, yeah. like just like you know, storm into the house the way they did, um, was crazy. Uh, but for, you know, on top of that, it was just like, there was another aspect to it, which this shooting happened two days ago. Um, the authorities are still searching for a clear motive. Like, how is it possible that the FBI is okay with this? Like, how is it possible that law enforcement has released this house? Like they they're no longer, the house was full of shit. It was full of, like papers like that had been um you know shredded um you'd think the fbi wanted to, would want to put those back together like it was full of clothes it was full of pictures it was full of ids at one point the guy from msnbc the reporter um on live on live like on air um live there was like a bed that had all these ids on it and he picked up one of the ids and then also a security card one of the ids and like had the camera zoom in on it and it was the mother of um, the man who was a shooter and it has like her name and her tax ID number, like her address, like that, you know, like what your, what your driver's license has on it. It was her driver's license. Um, and so that was aired on national cable news. Like, and uh, I mean, it's like that he basically, this woman got doxxed on live air and like yeah. no one, no, the reporters there, like the reporter didn't seem to have a problem with that. Like, it's like an innocent woman who did nothing um, and, you know, if you consider the environment right now, another aspect you might want to, you know, uh, comment on as well, Kevin, because you wrote about this, was the fact that in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, we didn't know who the shooters were. All we knew was that the police were looking for what they said was three white, white males um, dressed in military gear. And, of course, like, you know, three white males basically just means anyone who's not black. Um, like, it, it could be like that, that could mean that they were Latino. They could have been Arab, whatever. Um, that's all we knew. And so in the, media, in the immediate aftermath for several, actually for several hours, while we were still waiting to learn who the shooters were, like the left online went nuts. <laughs> and a lot of people were going on about like white people and how we never call white people terrorists. They were demanding we call this an act of terrorism before we even knew what, what it was about. Um, just because like they assumed it was white people. Um and it was like really shocking, a really shocking display to see because it's like, well, wait, like what if A, what if this ends up being Muslims? Because it could be, right? And you're sitting here demanding it be called terrorism. And it's like, do you want that label applied to everything? Because that's what basically they were saying. Any any act of mass violence should be called terrorism. And when you say that everything that comes with the word terrorism, you're also sort of like implicitly approving of that, um, which is all kinds of bad stuff. You know, the collective punishment of anybody who's related, like who's ethnically identifies um, the same ethnicity or religion as the person who committed the crime. Um, you're basically imply like that implies approval, like tacit approval for the security state that goes into. Um, 
you know, action anytime an act of terrorism is committed or whatever terrorism means, anytime a politically motivated act of almost always only, usually it's only acts committed by Muslims, but anytime a politically motivated act is committed and it's called terrorism, the security state goes into high gear, yeah. you know? So yeah. you go, yeah, that, so like that's kind of my commentary on everything I saw the last few days. Um, and you, go ahead and add to that. Well, I, I just, the things that were striking to me is, is as you're saying, in the immediate few hours, you saw these responses and it is, it's like a loop. We're in this terrible loop where an act of violence happens in this country and then everyone seems to have their tweets ready. And this is what Rokaya Chamsadine, she wrote at her personal blog, uh, she's a writer, and we had her as a guest on our show a couple weeks back, and she was talking about the performative aspect of people replying uh, or responding to these attacks with their uh, their statements about how uh, white people should be uh, seen as committing terrorism too. It shouldn't just be for Muslims, but the issue is whether any of these acts at all should be interpreted as terrorist acts uh and what does that word even mean i mean it's not terrorism does not have a fixed meaning and it's a propagandistic term that can be molded to fit just about any situation that people in power want to apply it to and so why not just call it a massacre why not just call it an assault why not just uh regard Things where people are killed in mass as slaughters or something like that. Those words to me seem perfectly fine for communicating the fear of what happened and, and what has just happened to innocent people. You don't have to elevate it to terrorism in such a way that it invites the ability of of changing all of these security policies and making our society even more closed than it is already. And, and then in addition to that, I would just say that it was striking. Like, Wolf Blitzer is on CNN talking, <laughs> talking about how reporters have gotten unprecedented access to the home or the place where these shooters lived. And it's like, yes. They broke in. Yeah, like, they yeah, broke in. That's a way to describe breaking and entering. Like, that, if that's how you describe tampering with a crime scene, I guess they did get unprecedented access. I mean, there was a movie that I actually liked a lot called Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal and he's a sociopath and he'll do anything to get any sort of a video um he'll 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 stage scenes so that he can get his work on the news and like essentially we were seeing journalists acting as sociopaths like entering into private property and rummaging through these uh belongings like they were at a garage sale and it was just really <laughs> incredible to see and then i think the biggest point that we should probably leave people with is that we don't know what exactly transpired in that moment where the reporters went off you know like they were at a black friday sale and started going through all parts of the apartment because the fbi uh had not closed the crime scene apparently and uh, we don't know if you know, there's something more that was going on with these individuals who were the shooters. Uh, I would just yeah. say that if, and you and I were talking about this, if a FBI sting operation had gone awry and 
was not uh, like you had no control of the suspect anymore or the target, maybe it would have looked like what happened at the social services center in uh, in San Bernardino. Yeah, I mean that's and, and this is not something like you know this is not this is something that people are. I mean, the legitimate question is like, how did law enforcement let that happen? You know, like it, it's almost as though they were encouraged. It's almost like they were they had like these these rogue reporters had been encouraged to just like go and clean up after their mess. Yeah, and, <laughs> and so, so you know, so what we're saying is, why were the reporters allowed in? Why is all this material okay? So like Harry Hauk is. I believe formerly with the New York Police Department, and he's terrible whenever he's on air <laughs> talking about people being killed um, by the police. You know, he's 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 brought on to justify police violence, but in this case, it was a pretty incredible scene to watch. You know, there's a one and a half minute clip posted by CNN where he's going through all the different materials that are still in. The crime scene that the FBI and other authorities apparently never boxed up and took away, and uh, it's not clear that the, the, the fingerprints have been taken, and, and it, it was this place dusted? I mean, what kind of anything has been done to this place in order to investigate what they're now calling an act of terrorism? And, well, especially when they're still looking. Like, the thing is, they're still trying to get a clear motive. So their investigation isn't over. It's like an ongoing investigation. You would think that the that the contents of the apartment that these people lived in would be really important to, and this is like two days after the shooting, like two days. It's been two days. Like you really got everything you need in two days. So it was just bizarre. And yeah, he was like on, he was talking to Anderson Cooper and was like losing his shit because, you know, he was just like, this is law enforcement. You know, this is like detective work 101. Like you can't have people contaminating a crime scene. There's like thousands of fingerprints from reporters now in this place. It's going to be, and one thing he kept saying is it's going to be impossible now to try and, like, find if there was maybe – if maybe these people had connections. Like, who else has been in that apartment? Who else have they had connections with? Are any of those people on watch lists? Um, and so, like, what immediately came to my mind is just, like, well, were any of those people maybe FBI informants? <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, like, I don't know. Like, it's you know, it's just, like, purely speculation. But it was just a really bizarre thing to see. And then the, the way, like, the, the lot – like, the way the authorities acted so cavalier about it afterwards like yeah like we're done there but like we didn't authorize the media but like it's like this was happening live on air um and there just seems to be so much that you could still use in your investigation in that apartment and like you're not coming to shut it down like at all um so it was just like everything about it was just really bizarre and it does make me think like it you know and i still do like it's like with the with a lot of you know we talk a lot in the show about fbi entrapment cases um, and we always say, like, I mean, I, something that I always say is this shit's dangerous because in the process of, like, of goading people into committing, like, fake attacks, what if you goad someone into committing a real attack? <laughs> like, yeah. what happens then if you if it goes out of control? And, I mean, again, total pure speculation here. Like, I'm just – it's just this case is just so confusing. Like, there's so many questions still left unanswered and just all the – all the – everything that's happened around it in the past couple of days has just been the most bizarre, surreal shit to watch. Like watching that media, like watching journalists rummage through the home the way they did was probably the craziest thing I've ever seen on cable news ever. I mean, you it know? was certainly one of the most lowest points yeah. of our profession 
in a long time. It's like vultures. They were being, they were behaving like vultures, like TMZ. It was like watching TMZ, but at like, but at like a high profile, you know, crime scene. Okay. So Anyways. we've got, we've got a few minutes left in our show yeah, and we wanted to talk about uh, this, this movie, Chirac, that, that you and I have both seen now that is incredibly polarizing in the United States, especially among people who are involved in uh, movement for black lives and, and activism around black liberation stuff. And, you know, I guess I'll just let you give your review, you know, whatever few words you want to give, and then I'll give mine and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about how flustered we are and confounded by people who have made judgments without even seeing this movie. Okay, so I got to go to the premiere because um, I was in Chicago and um, and um, I got invited to the premiere, so that was pretty cool. Um, all I knew, I, you know, I watched the trailer and I wasn't, I'm not going to lie, like I wasn't too impressed by the trailer, but I also know that um, there was a lot of criticism around the movie, so I went in expecting like something bad. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I really liked it. I thought it was great. I mean, it wasn't like the, it wasn't perfect. I, there was a couple moments when I cringed, but again, it was a movie. Um, and I was impressed. Like it was, it was, it was like witty. It was really insightful. I thought it took like really serious issues of vile, like of gang violence, of police violence, um, in like in poor black communities. And it, it made it like into something that was smart like it contextualized it but it was also entertaining to watch it was funny um and it was like i don't know i thought it was the, the movie was almost like a musical everything was everything was um all the dialogue was like in rhymes um you know some of it was a little corny <laughs> but a lot of it was really good like a lot of it was really good and funny like the crowd like i mean it was i there was a lot of people watching it and everybody was laughing at certain parts um i thought not, not all of the acting was great like but a lot but some of it well, other parts like a lot of it was uh, like samuel l jackson i thought was, i mean it's samuel l jackson so of course it was good but like was amazing his i mean i think his character was like my favorite <laughs> he was like the narr he basically narrated the film and it was he just did like a wonderful job um and yeah like i thought it was really like i thought for a hollywood film i mean i know it was spike lee's film so of course it was there was a certain like radicalness to it that you don't generally see in hollywood films but even for spike lee film, i thought it was really radical like it you know like it put poverty in the context of like capitalism a little bit not maybe not as much as i would have liked but a little bit it like really really i mean it really honed in on white supremacy um and it was kind of, it, like gave so many nods to the black lives matter um protests uh and basically compared police to gang members like it was really really good um and i actually encourage people you know to watch it at some point like i thought it was entertaining and good to see a hollywood film but my biggest criticism i would say is i i'm not a huge fan of the term chirac i'm not like you know a purist about it but i'm not a huge fan of it for a couple of reasons most like first and foremost the way the movie um the way the movie uh framed it was that more people died from homicides on the south side of chicago than american soldiers in iraq and afghanistan and so i just really um I really don't like the idea of comparing homicide victims to soldiers killed invading countries. Do you know what I mean? Like soldiers killed while invading countries. Um, I'm not happy that soldiers get killed while, you know, that, are, that U.S. soldiers get killed. But, like, 
there, you know, I just don't think that's fair. Like it's like people on the South side of Chicago, people in, you know, certain parts of this country are being killed, are being gunned down and they're not invading a country while they're doing it. And so I think it's a little bit different. You know what I mean? Um, but just, just, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm just wondering, I mean, the way that I interpreted it was that Spike Lee or the, and the other writers see the, fact that and i think this is not unique to the film this is something that i've heard locally here in chicago before is that uh there are more deaths in, uh, to an extent that it should be seen as like a war zone here in chicago right um, no i mean no, no, i totally get that but and like that's i mean i get that i'm just saying like the way the movie framed it that that was like the framing that bothered me and it, it's like there was like it was more than on one part of the movie too it was a, it was on like several parts mostly near the beginning where that's how they talked about it. And I was just yeah. annoyed because I just don't like the idea of comparing homicide victims to, if you're going to compare them to anybody, compare them to like, you know, Iraqis who were killed. Yeah. Like, which, you know what I mean? And then that would far surpass the number. And then also I do think like, I mean, and if you were, if you really want to get get into it, like it's like, well, and then, and then you get to the point where like, it's like a bit reductionist in a way, because it's like, it's like, there's like a different kind of work. I feel like, and, or, and I don't know. I feel like it, it takes away from the fact that like, um, it's a hyperbolic comparison, and I'm fine with it. I don't care. I'm not like offended by it. I just don't. I just don't think it really does a good service to the kind of violence that's taking place in Chicago. Um, yeah. okay. When you just like, anyways, anyways. But so, regardless, that was like my really my only main criticism was just like that part. But otherwise, like, I, I, and even even with that, like even with the couple parts that I was like, eh, or like the cr- cringeworthy moments, I thought it was a really great film. Yeah, I I actually, I did enjoy it, and like you say, there's there's things about it that. I think are uneven, um, and some of it is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of puns with, yeah. with, with sex and, and, and genitalia and stuff like that. And so, um, that, that sometimes takes you out of the movie, especially because this is based off of a Greek play, Lysistrata, and they're It's doing, also like corny, like they were like corny puns. Also, they're like doing it in verse, so then they like rhyme it, and there's, there's some sometimes it takes you out of the movie just because of the style of how he decided to do this. But at the same time, uh, the, the, that image at the beginning, there's the, the United States and there's all these like weapons interlocked in red, white, and blue to like make this image of the U S with like Hawaii and, and Alaska. Do you remember that, Rania? No, I didn't even notice that. Cause I'm, I guess not paying attention to detail as much as you are. Right, so this was in the opening credits. Like, I, I don't know how, maybe it was changed since the premiere. I don't know. But like, uh, there, there was an opening and the opening has, um, uh, that I saw was, uh, uh, played the this rap song with like lyrics that flash yeah, on the with screen. Yeah, Nick Cannon I think was singing it. Okay, I I could have done without that. But then <laughs> after but then in 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 this there's a there's a incredible image. I wish I could find it on the internet and like share it with people cuz it was a nice representation of like our country's fanaticism around guns and like how, how like how defined we are and attached to guns in mm-hmm. in many states. So, so the the biggest thing that I would say I'm I'm actually going to publish a review. Um, one of the things that I'll I'll say before we wrap up our show is just if you think the idea of a sex strike is ridiculous, I think one of the things that is really powerful to me is you could find yourself thinking that this is ridiculous and and laugh and then all of a sudden be like, oh. But you know what's even more ridiculous is that like nobody knows how to fix this. Nobody knows how to yeah. like, 
there's there's no answer. So like I think one of the things that's brilliant about what Spike Lee is doing by proposing a sex strike as a as a solution is that it's like okay, we've tried everything that we can here in Chicago. Uh, I could quibble with that. I don't know how. You know, I'm not sure. Like, there are people on the lower level. Uh, there's a really great documentary called The Interrupters um, that's, uh, that people should watch. Um, and, and there are people that have tried to um, do conflict resolution with gang members and, and, and try to resolve some of the issues on the south side of Chicago. But it's just like there are just so many systemic issues, as you're talking right. about, with white supremacy and the underground economy and uh, so mass incarceration. Poverty, yeah, mass incarceration. Yeah. And and so it's like they're 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 trying to confront all of those issues with this very simple, you know, wild, absurd scenario of mm-hmm. women going on a sex strike. And I have to say also that I don't think they're objectifying women. Uh, I've seen this criticism thrown around. I don't think they're exploiting the characters in this movie either. But I also say that I would argue they're not objectifying women just because. Both people, both genders in the movie desire pleasure to to similar degrees. Like, they are, they are created equal. Um, yeah. the, the men want sex. The women also... Women get, definitely get, want sex, The yeah. women also get pleasure from the sex. So I did not feel like <laughs> this was a statement about, you know, women aren't smart. The only thing they have to offer is their bodies. The only political power they have is to withhold their, you know bodies from men and that's the only way that they're going to get any sort of change and they even say in the movie i'm not spoiling it too much but i'm going to say this because someone's going to tell me that i'm wrong that a sex strike is not going to actually solve the problem they are going to need truth and reconciliation yeah that's one thing i did like i mean it was really corny at the end the way it happened but i got a little emotional i get emotional easily but John Cusack's um, but... role is incredible. That that sermon in Saint Sabina is an amazing scene um, when he's delivering it. Yeah, his it. character is based off of like was it Michael Flager? Father Michael Flager, who is a a real pastor who has been here in the South Side of Chicago in um, in this city for thirty years since nineteen eighty one, um, over thirty years. And, um, and he's yeah. white. He's white, so people could always get confused when they haven't heard of him. Like people from the outside. And his delivery is like that. He's very it, flamboyant. Yeah, it's like it's authentic. He talks like a black preacher, but it's authentic. It's acceptable. Like, he's I, really he's like Jeremiah. Like he's like Jeremiah Wright style in terms of like radicalness. Maybe maybe a little less. I don't know. Maybe a little less radical. But he's like a big Jeremiah Wright fan and friend. I think like during in the beginning before the movie, he actually like was at the premiere and. Gave a little, like, two-minute, like, not even to, like, a minute long, like, just really quick and shouted out um, Jeremiah Wright. And even Louis Farrakhan, which is weird. And actually, in the movie, there's, like, gangs. And, of course, the gangs aren't real gangs, but they're parodies of gangs. Um, and then they also do, like, they have, like, a parody of the Nation of Islam. Yes, they <laughs> do. Just, like, wearing these tarboosh hats, <laughs> you know? And, like, it, it's really, it's actually really funny. Um, but, yeah, anyways. But, but it's funny, and I, and I have to say that, like, I want there to be, I, I wish that our culture had a place for this kind of movie. I don't get the resentment to it. Especially yeah, from when people have, activists. I've not even yeah. seen it. I mean, okay, so there's so there's another movie similar. This reminds me of uh, my last thought about this is there's a movie that maybe some of our listeners have heard of. It's called Bamboozled. It was it was made by Spike Lee. Damon Wayans is in it. It was produced in 2000. It's a satire of the television industry. And in this movie, what happens is 
A writer has his sitcom is a Cosby style show. Yes, Cosby's a rapist. That's just the obligatory mention of like Cosby's that a rapist. Really Whenever I, like I mention that. the Cosby show. But mm-hmm. it's a sitcom modeled off of the Cosby show and it gets rejected by network executives. So out of out of anger, he decides he's gonna bring back the minstrel show. And <laughs> Yeah, and so he decides he's going to produce a, a show, and uh, he's going to have Africa. Uh, he's going to have black characters appear in even blacker face. Oh my god! Um, whoa! And what happens is it ends up becoming a success. Oh. And um, and in fact, actually, it's black people who make it a success, um, <laughs> oh and it make it acceptable for white people to laugh and enjoy the minstrel show. And this is a biting satire, and I think that like. If it was produced today, everyone in Black Lives oh. Matter would would be outraged at the the just just the the way it was set up and like what Spike Lee was trying to do and would say that it's not funny and and I would I would argue that like he's trying to make a big statement about the nature of the TV industry and that's the same thing I'd say about Chirac is he's making a very large statement about how everything happens and functions in in the city and and it's also yeah. like it's not just unique to chicago he uses no chicago. it's actually like a generic it's very everything there's a mayor who's like just like a generic white mayor who's not even rahm emanuel yeah it's like, not even modeled off of rahm yeah and like it's a not lot even of it's clear like, it's also sorry it's uh well actually they do mention michelle towards the end i believe but it wasn't clear initially that they were using barack as president but they do i think end up well the, F- is the fbi director or is it the fbi director in the movie or like the guy who's like trying to um to like get the the people to get out of the armory like the women the black women from chicago have like taken over the u.s armory yes, yes. <laughs> and it's the it's the guy who's like in charge is the guy who plays if you watch the blacklist he plays harold cooper yes um and like he basically i feel like like his whole role is to just be like um the black person in an authority position who is like the eric holder like the obama you know type who is just like is a part of the system um and they like tell it to his face i mean it's so good like there's so there's a lot of big statements in it like the women tell it to his face there's so many big statements in it and you know what's really surprising to me is the movie had so many nods to black lives matter so it was really surprising for me to see so many people from like from Black Lives Matter be so angry about this movie because it like I'm not saying they have to like it I was just surprised because the movie really does give so many nods like to to black women who've been shot by police to and they compare police to gang members like you know they they go into that issue as well I, so I was just it was it was surprising to see all the anger about it. and I think a lot of it has to do with just what we're seeing on the left more generally today and left activism in general, which is um, just a lot of like, I don't know we talked about it on the show before. Like, yeah, a lot of the, we don't have to get into it again, we have to but, get into it, but I think it has to do with that. But either way, like I thought it was a great movie. I thought they also was- haven't seen the movie. They need to go see the movie before they, I, I know that everyone has their Twitter accounts like at their finger t- fingertips and it's so easy to write a status and, and share your opinion based on the little tidbits you see. But it's just like, Go see the movie before you put together your own review, and and like also like there are rappers from around the area that are that are running their mouths and and critiquing the entire movie, and they haven't even seen it. And it's like, yeah. just go <laughs> yeah, see people it. Chicago, people in Chicago were pissed off about the movie before it was out. That was yeah. weird too. Yeah. But whatever. All Anyways, right. we liked it, so that's well, our, our review. Uh, <laughs> so that's our show, uh, and we went a little long. But there was a lot to get in, and we missed uh, last week. So 
Uh, we'll be back. We've got a couple more episodes to round out the year. Anything else from you, Rania? Nope, that's it. Just, yeah, donate if you can. Yes, uh, yes. Please support our podcast if you can, and we'll be back next week. 